And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 258 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. How you doing this week, Brian? Uh, I'm okay. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm alright. Yeah? Yeah. Good. You know, some good days, some bad days this, this week. Yeah, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and then you got the facts of life. The facts of life. I go for my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine tomorrow. That's oh, exciting. That yeah. Exciting. Yeah. I have begun to plan and discuss theater projects for the fall. Aha, uh-huh, yay. Which is a relief. Yeah, I think uh I I I think end of summer fall is when things will start uh yeah. we'll start seeing some normalcy again. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But let's talk about comics. Comics. Starting this week with Batman, number 107. Batman. Our main feature here is The Cowardly Lot, part two. Written by James Tynan IV, with art by Jorge Jimenez, colors by Tomeo More, and letters by Clayton Cowles. Okay, so I gotta say, this, uh, this new environment that we're entering into, where Batman is essentially, um, you know, e- e- performing illegally, right? Yeah. Like, it, it really feels more and more like going into like an Arkham Asylum game where like he's got to sneak through to get into everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he actually has to operate in the shadows. In the shadows, exactly. Exactly. 100%. Yeah, it's it's a pretty significant contrast from where Tynan started his run where like every issue Batman has some new big flashy vehicle. Right. Including, didn't he have like a whole bat subway train at one point? I think so, yeah. Or like a system that, you know, a decommissioned system where he had his own private, yeah. Oh my gosh, crazy, yeah. Um, Of course, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Harley Quinn continues to steal this book when she shows up in it. Yes, she does. Like, her on, on the street in Gotham dealing with, what was his name again? Stabo. Stabo, that's right. <laughs> Dealing because, with Stabo. Because, because I'm I'm pretty sure because I, I, I can't think of anything. That that's probably my quote of the week. <laughs> Brian's quote of the week. Getting it out of the way early. Where she talks to she's talking to him, she's like, Wow, you're a real nut job, but you were always real sweet when you were on your meds. What are you calling yourself now, honey? They calls me Stabo. Oh, hon, you're not too good at naming things, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, then the cops show up and want to beat him up. And yeah. she's like, no, he just needs his meds. You're not going to do that. Takes out a right. cop. More cops show up. And then Ghostmaker shows up to whisk her away with the promise of replacing her motorcycle. Because those are expensive. 
And she she just leaves a note on Stabo that he just needs his meds. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I love that she, she like, he, he pull, like, a cop pulls a gun and points it at her and she like hits him and she, before she even thinks about it, right? Yeah. And then like, and, and then of course the officers are immediately requesting back, you know, she's, uh, Harley Quinn's working with the stabber. It's like, no, no. No, no, you dumbasses. That's, 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 that's why she left him for you. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, it, I'll be a little bit frightened though. If she latches on to Ghostmaker instead of Batman as her, <laughs> um, uh, I don't want to, I, I hesitate to say mentor, but yes, yeah. essentially, yes. As her, as her, how about this? As her superhero sponsor. There you go. I love it. Yes, exactly. Her her patron superhero. <laughs> uh, oh boy, she's great though. I I love her in this phase of her. I do too. Like both yeah. here and in Harley Quinn, she is doing she's so good. The same basic thing in a way that is just really really satisfying. Okay. Do we know who it is that shows up? there uh, when she, right when she leaves though i think we have heard this character's name she has a real um like rose and thorn kind of potential just like the way she's holding the rose there's obviously some potential you know uh green uh poison ivy vibe to her yeah well we know poison ivy is kind of in play in captivity in gotham Right. So, like, it makes me wonder if, like, they've somehow taken Poison Ivy's powers and she kind of has them now. Well, or, we you know, know. Has given her the same power set, or I don't know. Or is, is it at least, like, manipulating Ivy to make Something. these these leaf dogs? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the, the shape of the whole thing is, how it all connects, but we've seen... In Catwoman, we've seen that Saint has control of Ivy. Yeah. And we've seen in this that Saint and Scarecrow are in cahoots. Which we so, kind of already knew, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. In, in, in one, we got that. We maybe, right. with hindsight, can see how that would have been the case in, like, Future State Harley Quinn. Yeah. Um... The question here is maybe how much does the Insanity Collective actually have to do with Saint? Is he pulling those Correct. strings as well? I'm blanking on this character's name. I know I've heard it, uh, and I keep coming up with Miracle Molly. That's the uh, It the, may be because sh that's the next book, the next issue, is okay. called Miracle Molly. Okay, that may be Miracle Molly. Then. And then we get the return of, uh, of, a, of another character at the, at the very end here. I love it. Yes. We, have, we haven't seen Mr. Malone in a while. Hey, the name's Match. Just Match. <laughs> as soon as as soon as Barbara told him he would need to infiltrate, I'm like, please, please find a way to bring back matches. Matches Malone, baby. Yeah. yeah. Love Barbara in this too. Oh my god, I know I love her. she's like I love her idea of yeah, we're gonna set up uh, bat signals, you know, as like one-time use on different rooftops, and then we'll move them after a single use so that we, you know the police never know where you're going to go, and you know we'll, we'll turn it on and you'll show up and talk to a Gordon on a rooftop. I think I'll get the hang of it. And it's all because Bruce keeps turning off his comms and she yes, can't exactly. get a hold of him. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like we know who's really in charge here now, don't we? 
<laughs> that sheepish look on her face when she says it's great. I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, we also have a Ghost Maker backup here. Uh huh. Written by James Tynan, art by Ricardo Lopez Ortiz, colors by Tomeo More, and letters by Clayton Cowles. And off the bat, I want to say Clayton Cowles gets to really flex his lettering muscle in this backup. He does. Just about every character has their own font and sometimes balloon style. And his work in this is very, like this whole issue, but this backup in particular is very good. Yeah, I I I completely agree. Also, just how how great is Ghostmaker in this? Like <laughs> I I love his um I love his rogues gallery. <laughs> so good, so good. I mean we have Kawaii. We have yeah, Kid Kawaii. Kid Kawaii, there it is, yeah. Brainstorm. Uh, genetically engineered telekinetic. Kid yeah. Kawaii is a ferrofluid assassination robot. Yep. There is Razorline, an unspeakable otherworldly horror, and the instigator, magically transformed martial artist and terrorist. What is he transformed into, by the way, Brian? Uh, it sure does look like a uh, a big old crocodile. And that is a giant fucking crocodile. Yeah. And they are all meeting with Madame Midas, the richest woman on Earth. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I. I didn't know until I read this that, oh yeah, I'd read a whole Ghostmaker ongoing. Well, what I love is, so yeah, uh, she has brought them all together because all of them are like the only people who have ever survived being attacked by Ghostmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wanted to query like and get like the one thing that each of them did right that allowed them to survive so she can like formulate a plan to actually defeat him. Yeah. And then they're like, well, how do you know he'll show up? She was like, oh, because I told him you were all coming here. So uh, <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I I loved this backup very much. Yeah. Yep. Fun stuff. Moving on. Green Lantern number one. Written by Jeffrey Thorne. Art by Dexter Soy and Marco Santucci. Colors by Alex Sinclair. And letters by Rob Lee. This is one of the... the infinite frontier books going into that i was like the most optimistic for Mm -hmm. and also kind of like the most cautious about because i really i have always really liked green lanterns like if you ask little kid alex name his favorite dc character he would have said the green lantern that's yeah, that would have been my set. Green Lantern was the second comic that I ever started collecting. Green Lantern comics have been really hit or miss for me. Really, really boiling down to one thing, which is how much are they about, like, military activity or police activity versus how much are they superheroics? Right. I fall way more on the give me the superheroic side of things. And I like this sort of balance of playing into the shifting political landscape. Yes. While still getting to be, like, focused on solo characters in very superhero kind of ways, like talking down enemies, seeking peaceful resolution. Yep. Uh, but then but then fighting when they have to, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and there's room for humor when you do it that way, and, like, Kelly is just... Kelly is just a she, constant beam of light through this she book. absolutely is absolutely like the fact that they let her have the cover is like yes yes well, 
I'm I'm pretty sure ongoing this is going to be about Kelly and John and uh, Simon. Uh, actually, I mean Simon is definitely a bigger part of this than I expected him to be, yeah. and I'm happy for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, uh, Joe. Joe, right, I think, yes. is supposed to show up yeah. in issue two and and yeah. be the other main character right. in this book. Well, because we 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 learned something that 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 there is, which which we knew from the future state, which is that her gauntlet isn't doesn't receive its power from the power battery, which is the same as Joe's ring. Right, and yeah. this is like that that kind of future state thing, right? Where we're like, what are they seeding? That will become part of status quo. Clearly, we were right to to click in on those consistencies between the Green Lantern stories there. Yeah, yep. Because that is going to matter quite a bit, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love how uh, the Guardians being big bosses uh, uh, and being the parents that know what's best for the universe, right? Uh-huh. I, I've always kind of like, ah, really? Okay, fine, whatever. But like I love them taking a step back from that now, yeah, and basically saying, you know, it, it, we have basically, you know, there are planets that have treated us like gods, but we are not. We are we are fallible. We yeah. make mistakes as well. We know that we, you know, everybody knows this, et cetera. And you know, for so long we've acted like the parents, but I think uh, you know, the role that we really need to be is like maybe like elder sibling. Like, yeah, we have more experience and we have definitely have things that we can teach you, but we don't know everything and we can't tell you guys what you need to do. Well, and we see that scene play out in basically yeah. picture picture in the Star Wars prequel trilogy, the the Galactic Republic chambers. Right. Yeah. Um, As as the League of Planets. Is that what it's called? No. Uh, no, the United Planets. United Planets. Yeah. As the United Planets debates whether or not to grant OA membership. Right. Uh, that scene plays out. But at the same time, John and Simon and Kelly and others are dealing with this group of delegates, visitors, something along those lines, who are magic users who claim... I bet accurately, knowing the Guardians, that the Guardians' power battery is like part of the mystical core of the universe that they have stolen. Right. And locked away, and these this group wants to free it. Yep. Which would explain why the power battery goes dead in Future State if they succeed. It would. Yes, oh, essentially what they have said is, like, the Guardians took, like, half the magic of the universe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is apparently why it's so hard to travel back and forth to Jim World. (laughs) Kelly mentions having been there, and one of them makes their entrance on, no, you are lying, you are lying like all the lanterns. nobody can get there, right. Uh, Which, I I like pulling her backstory into this, like, there's so much smart in this issue. Agreed. And then, you know, they, they managed to free this this creature that was created by the Guardians that they have locked in the middle of, of Oa. Uh, and um, it, it turns out that this creature was literally designed to take out any Guardian group, you know, any any Lantern group from the emotional spectrum, because it can absorb all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And turns out the way you 
you defeat it is by not fighting it. Yeah, I thought that was good. I also like, uh, this is, I guess, more of a design note. Although they talk about it in the issue. Uh, Guy gives John grief for it. John chooses to wear a ceremonial robe that is based off of Kryptonian robes. Yes. Which one looks fucking awesome. It does look good on him, doesn't it? Uh, But two, like, I just like that idea. The, okay, we need... We need dress uniforms for the lanterns? What should those look like? Right. And then not, people not agreeing and just wearing different different versions. Um, we also get the idea here that John maybe becomes counsel to the Guardians going forward because he has been a Guardian. Right. Uh, and they seek out his perspective on matters. Uh, I feel like there was one other thing in here I definitely wanted to mention. Oh! Did you catch where they say that Jessica Cruz is on her way to? Yes, Sector 123. Yeah. The yep. same sector that she was in in Future State. Yeah, where she gets trapped with no... Yeah. Yeah. On, on the on the station there. Um, And then, yeah, so in this United Nations, like, literally all of these planets are here. You've got, from New Corgard, you've got, you know, the Sinestro Corps. Mm-hmm. contingent right we know that there's red lanterns that are here um yeah it's it's uh it's kind of cool you know yeah. there's all literally everybody is represented i also really like this new thanagarian like <laughs> yeah commander who who shows up especially that one like john under his breath thanagarians they're all like that like what's happened with him and shayara since justice league yeah clearly something yeah I don't know. I don't know, but I am so, so happy with this first issue. Yeah, me too. Uh, and then, you know, we get a big, big something at the end. Big shocker yep. at the end. <laughs> Next Batman, Second Son, number one. Written by John Ridley, with pencils by Tony Akins and Travel Foreman, inks by Mark Morales, colors by Rex Locus, and letters by Darren Bennett. What did you think of this, Brian? Um... I enjoyed it very much. It's it's interesting to me that um they they kind of do a little bait and switch on this. Yeah. Right? Where cuz we know from Future State, right? Who who Batman is there. Right. That's not who we get in this. I have seen, I think in an interview John Ridley described this as the next Batman year 1. Yeah. In a way. Uh-huh. And what it what it really feels like this series is doing is the work of connecting the dots from yeah. how do we go from the status quo readers know yep. to a status quo where Luke is not acting as Batwing anymore and yeah. we have a new Batman. Yeah. And I, I, I that's exactly what I was going to say. I think this one takes us to where everybody assumed what might be the case, right? I mean, we certainly talked about it, that yeah. it made sense that Luke would be. Um, and I think you're exactly, it takes us from that and just starts where everybody assumed it kind of would, would be. And then is going to tell us, like you said, how, how that didn't work and, and how it changes too. Yeah. And it also gives us some answers to things that we it saw does. teased yeah. in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reason Jace gets blamed in his family for his sister being in a coma. Right. 
we see, I guess, the end of this issue. That's that's where this one stops, right? Uh, I, I I read I read every all of the individual ones, okay, digital ones. So I may actually even be like one digital one ahead. I think from where because digital is out through what will be print number two, right? Yeah. So this runs, yeah. This ends with this ends with Tam collapsing. Okay. Okay. So yeah, um, I'm definitely I'm definitely further than that. Yeah. So. I really enjoy this. I like I like getting to see how these pieces move. I think it would have been I, I easy agree. to come in and say, we'll just tell you this in the background and and let you see Jace out being an action hero right. as like, I don't know, Batman in a turtleneck and, you know, a balaclava. And I mean, we do get moments of him doing sneaky undercover stuff. But this is about more than that, and is not just the, let's see, prototype next Batman. Well, and here's the thing. I like how uh, I like how they are putting those paving stones in place to see the steps that lead to it, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is a little bit, I think, outside of this issue, but you, I think you start seeing it in this issue. But it becomes a little bit more clear as we go on about, like, how his sister is, you know, giving him the why aren't you doing something kind of his younger sister yeah 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 well and that's that's actually the other thing i wanted to talk about because i don't i i know when we talked about the issue you had not read it yet but have you had a chance to go back and read the i think it was a batman black and white uh where yes john ridley yep did a next batman and his sidekick yes in what will be print issue number two, we get to see more of her and how she gets to that point. Yes. Yep. Or at least the thinking that will clearly lead her down that road. Correct. Now, the, the one thing that we haven't really seen, I mean, uh, and maybe we are and we just don't recognize it for that yet, yeah. is Luke kind of turning, right? And to the point where he supports, uh, is in the place that he is at. We saw, I think we see the beginning of Jace moving to what he's going to yeah. become, but we're not really seeing Luke kind of move in the other direction yet. Yeah, I think I think based on where Chapter 6, which will be the end of Number 2, which is right. also the halfway point of the, whole the print run. It's a right. four-issue yeah. print. Yep. Um, I think based on where that ends, like at that point he is positioned to make that transition. Yep. Suicide Squad Number 2. Oh, wow. Heaven help me. I like this too. Um, <laughs> Written by Robbie Thompson, pencils by Eduardo Pansica, inks by Julio Ferreira, colors by Marcelo Maiolo, and letters by Wes Abbott. I, I feel like I shouldn't like this book, but I do. <laughs> I'm kind of there with you. Right? Like, God, is there anybody good? I mean, I guess Connor's good in this book, but like, ugh. Like, like you feel like you need a shower after reading about these characters. I mean, I feel like this is kind of the thing I normally bump into in Suicide Squad a little bit. Like the, why do I care about any of them? And that's just it. And in this particular one, you 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 don't, and you get the permission. You, you feel like you get the permission that it's kind of okay not to. Yeah, and that makes you feel like oh. God, now I'm in it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think there are enough moving pieces too that are like positioning you to have hope for the redemption of the Suicide Squad. Like, let's see Connor get 
control of the ship. Yeah. Like, having a Superman... I think that's part of it, too. Like, when have we ever had a Superman on the Suicide Squad? No. Yeah. Although, uh, Peacemaker puts him in his place, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. well... From Peacemaker's perspective. Peacemaker I mean. is basically DC's John Walker, in my mind. Okay. By the way, can can I just say, whoever made the decision to cast John Cena as Peacemaker in the, in the next movie, like, is there a more perfect possible casting for that? <laughs> I mean that is that is very good. <laughs> just yeah. I'm 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 just imagining uh Wyatt Russell and John Cena showing up as John Walker and Peacemaker in the Ugh. same like Peacemaker and US Agent, like Ugh. there are no winners there, but you kinda wanna you kinda just wanna see them wail on each other. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um but yeah, this uh this and I don't, I, I don't even know if I can put my finger on what it is, because this in some ways feels a lot more like kind of the Back to Roots original idea of the Suicide Squad, right? Uh, of truly disposable villains, yeah, that are being used. But at the same time, like you said, you get a, you get a Superman on the team, which is so different. You get that... a Superman on the team, and like Waller is already scheming you already know she is up to something oh yeah and i think that sets you could almost you can almost make the comparison to in the last run a team of very likable characters right dealing with Locke, who was out of the gate awful and i think like you kind of get that a similar math here where maybe broadly the characters are not likable but at least you've got a superman and you want to see him like rise up and stop Waller from her bullshit. Yeah, and, like, redeem these other characters, right? Yeah. Yep. Because I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any room for Waller is up to good in this. Waller is always up to what Waller thinks is good. And that's it. That, yes, that's definitely true. But I feel like... I guess maybe this is that future state. Yeah kind of seeping back in this doesn't feel like waller up to what waller thinks is good as much as waller up to waller is fed up and is just going to do what will work anyone else be damned yeah and maybe that's a a thin line in the sand for waller right but it does it doesn't feel morally gray it just feels like fuck it i'm going to just settle this once and for all Yep. Well, and that because that's the phrase that Peacemaker keeps giving to her, right? Peace at any price. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I like it, but I don't know that I like that about me. <laughs> there you go. The Swamp Thing, number two. Unequivocally likable. Written by Ram V. Art by Mike Perkins. Colors by Mike Spicer. And letters by Aditya Bidikar. I kind of get the feeling that one and two form sort of a prologue. I. Uh, Absolutely, yes. Uh, in this issue, most of what we see is Levi dealing with accepting his new status quo. Uh-huh. And kind of, in parallel, beginning to tackle the trauma of what went down when he went back to visit his father and all of that. Mm-hmm. And like those two, those two pieces sort of dovetail into him accepting his role as Swamp Thing 
Although he he still transforms back and forth yes. uh, after what we see here, which is definitely new and different. It is. Uh, of course, that's one of the things this issue kind of focuses on is you have to adapt for the world. And maybe this is part of how he adapts as Swamp Thing. Right. Um. Yeah, I, I, the more the, each issue of this that I read, I'm real curious if, if if I might not like this better in trade. Not that I don't like it by any, I, I absolutely love it. But just the way that, like, specifically these two are tied together so heavily, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it it really, I I almost feel like it would read better if it just if you just read the whole thing right there, or at least like these two together. I I certainly think like these two together yeah. form a unit of story, right. and, and that's yeah. The the way they break is not to me bad. I understand where you're coming from. Right. That this like. And this this goes back to how this series has been greenlit. This series was greenlit as a 10-issue season. Correct. Uh, Ram V and Mike Perkins have plans for what their season two would look like if this sells well enough. But this is more than, I think, more than a typical in-continuity superhero book written as one collected volume. Yeah, I think on the cover it even says, like, number two of ten. It does. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is 100% announced and solicited as... A 10-issue run. A 10-issue run. Yep. Kind of like that that Grant Morrison, The Green Lantern, right? Right, yeah. Which absolutely... Like, I didn't grab season two of that in singles because I'm going to go back and get all of it in trade and reread it in one go. Yep. I like how... And I mean, Rom V writes horror very well. This is not news. Yeah. I like how those sort of almost Twilight Zone horror tropes get used here to 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 streamline weeks of yes. story. Yeah, I'm, I do know what you're saying there, yeah. Because he talks about, you know, how he's, night after night after night, he does the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And, like, you get this kind of existential dread by seeing all of this in such a compressed way, in the way that something like, Again, it feels it feels Twilight Zone to me because I think that's also dealing with like a very compressed can deal with a very compressed form of storytelling. It's all anthology. Right. You get the episode to get there. Um, but I like seeing those those tools used that way to to play up kind of the anxiety of it. Uh, I'm also curious to see where this goes, given some of what we see teased at the end of this issue. Yeah, there's clearly, I think you're absolutely right. This very, very definitely reads as the prologue. And, you know, the the very last page or two pages, we get the, uh, the, the, the first drop of what the rest of the story might be leading to. Yeah, I... I would I would call maybe a spoiler warning here, if you haven't read this and want to go in blind. Um... But at the end of this, Levi, as Swamp Thing, makes a tree grow in the desert, which gets attention on him, sort of just generally. Like, no one knows Swamp Thing has done this, but there are a couple of people who recognize, oh, this is definitely Swampy added again. We see Batman in the Batcave, like, watching coverage of this. Yeah. Like, clearly there's people who recognize that it's something to do with green, right? Yes. Yeah. 
but then we cut to Prescott Industries in New York. Prescott doesn't ring any bells for me personally, does it for you, Brian? Neither does the name of Mr. Pilgrim. I wonder if this is... I need to go back and check the first issue. I haven't done it. Do we? Do you recall if they name the company Levi works for, the company that like he's... Because when he's sent to India, to him it's to reconnect with his father, but it's ostensibly for business to, to manage this acquisition. Um, yeah, well, and there's a file very specifically that says Mergers and Acquisitions Sunderland Corporation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I wonder if this is the same company he works for right. or is related to the company he works for in some way, either as yep. a rival or whatever. Uh, like you said, there is a folder on his desk or on his table called Mergers and Acquisitions uh, talking about the Sunderland Corporation. Yeah. And then the, possibly the more interesting one, R&D, D527, the Holland Phenomenon. Yeah. Which, of and, course, and, is... And there's a, and there's a photograph of, of Levi and his wife. Yes. Yeah. So, which, which kind of raises the question, is this... If this is the company that sent Levi out there, right. did they do this on purpose? Did they somehow engineer his transformation? Because someone is also surveilling him yes. in, this, in this issue. Correct. So we get mystery elements too, I guess is is uh what I'm saying, which throw in a little mystery with the horror and you've got me. You've got me yeah. good. While we are in the horror corner, the silver coin number one. This is written by Chips Darsky, drawn, colored, and lettered by Michael Walsh. Uh if you are not familiar with the concept of this book, it is a revolving writing team with Michael Walsh handling all the art and lettering and coloring duties. Uh, it's sort of Michael Walsh's baby. He is the brainchild of it. Uh, I think they actually announced recently that he's going to write issue six himself as well. Uh, issue number two will be Kelly Thompson. I think Ed Brisson is on one. Uh, like Really solid creative team lined up for all of this. And in kind of that horror anthology style, all of mm -hmm. this is following this one silver coin. Uh, in this issue, it turns up in a box that belongs to this one guy's mother. He is the guitarist for a rock band. And he is frustrated with uh, the success of disco limiting his band's ability to book gigs and sign record deals and all that. Okay. And he finds this weird coin in his mother's, this box of his mother's possessions she left years ago. Mysteriously. And he ends up, like, using it as a guitar pick, because he can't find a guitar pick. And, oh, the music he plays when he uses it is amazing. And also, it, like, cuts his thumb and makes him bleed. And an eye opens on it. Not creepy at all. And from Because it, it sounds creepy. <laughs> it is, it is. I lied. It's very creepy. Um, so he, he, at one level, it kind of maybe hits the beats you kind of, kind of expect there. Uh, he becomes dependent on this coin, gets a big ego, all of that. Uh, it, it, it ends up taking a horrific turn, a more horrific turn. Uh, and then that sets up sort of this coin getting passed on to another person. So this is all in kind of one connected world. Interestingly, number two is not 
just going to follow the next guy who picks up the coin. It's going to jump to the 90s, and we're going to see someone else totally unrelated in issue two. Okay. Uh, but they've said in interviews that that characters may, supporting characters in one may show up in another. So I think, like, as this goes, it's going to build this sort of timeline of of sort of how this coin has traveled around. I also want to say, like, it is very much a, a sort of artist showcase book. Like, it's all Michael Walsh, and I am a big Michael Walsh fan. The work he does in here is... I think some of his best. Uh, I don't know if I'm used to seeing him color himself. I don't think I am. Okay. But he does a good job of it here. Uh, he, he keeps he he keeps to kind of I'd say across the issue he uses a pretty broad palette, but he keeps like individual pages sort of in in blues and greens and purples. Uh, which kind of helps show time and how it passes and, and all those things. But his line work and the the really, like, inky blacks he uses are just amazing in here. I'm looking at one page with, like, fire and smoke and blood, and it's just... It is gorgeous and horrifying at the same time. Um, and, like, that's kind of this book as a whole. Like, it all... It is all so masterfully executed and and just kind of terrifying. So I really dug it. Um, anthology horror comics are the easiest way to sell me on single issues of horror comics. There you go. Seven Secrets number seven. I'm going to be quick here, but I didn't want to acknowledge this since this is the beginning of the second arc. This is written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Danielle Daniculo. Colors are by Walter Biamonte, with assists by Katia Rinaldi, and letters are by Ed Dukeshire. Uh, like I said, this this picks up the second arc. If there had not been a two-month gap between arcs, as is normal with creator-owned books, I would be convinced this is the last chapter of the first arc. This, I like the way the first arc ends and all the questions it ends on, but this gives us some immediate answers, which is a thing this book does not always deal in. <laughs> it's a book called Seven Secrets. It likes the slow reveal. Um, at the end of the first arc, the, the, the good guys, ostensibly, which don't even know how much to trust that in this book's world, escape their attackers into, like, an ethereal space realm with maybe I don't know a weird bridge through like this very this very abstract abs, not a, not abstract this very like ethereal limbo space and uh, also there are like fairy folk living there and they claim to be the main character's parents. Well, this this untangles all of that. It explains sort of how he came to live there, even though he has no recollection of it, and why that's the case, and who these characters are, and why he apparently has Excalibur now. Also, he gets Excalibur now. Uh, <laughs> a lot happens here, and getting some answers, even though it's just like very short-term questions, getting some answers in this book is wildly satisfying. And makes me want the next issue now. Yeah, there, there, there's a very fine line that, uh, that that you have to walk when you're playing everything close to the vest and not answering. Like, you have to occasionally give a little bit out. To... 
to yeah, feel and satisfying, that's, right? That's something that this book, like, I definitely think reading reading this in single issues, that first arc, month to month, asked for a lot of patience. I think if you're reading it in trade, then that structure is going to maybe be a little less, okay, give me something I don't understand. I think by the end of the first arc, that balance is there, and I think it earns, kind of retroactively earns its ambiguity. Right. But any information, it's it's like paper girls, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Any information feels like water in a in a desert. <laughs> and it's it's still fun without knowing what's going on but getting that information just reinforces how good everything else is there you go all right all right excalibur number 20 time to visit krakoa this is written by teeny howard art is by marcus toe colors are by eric arseniega letters by ariana mar and design by tom moeller i will say what i said to brian when we were making our notes this is my new favorite issue of this book Ah. Uh. And that's saying something, because I've liked a lot of issues of this book. Agreed. But yeah, this is, um, I, this is a this issue. This is a book about malice. And I wanna I wanna be clear up front here, like yeah, we got the reveal that malice was involved at the end of nineteen, and uh-huh. I went the entity that possessed Sue Storm. Did you know there are six different malices in Marvel Comics? I had. No clue. No. There are like six, it may be five. There are five or six different malices in Marvel Comics. I'd never fucking heard of this one, and you know what? After this issue, I'm so invested in her. Oh, yeah, right? Like, this issue is a masterclass in taking, uh, let's say, an obscure character. I'm sure that there are plenty of people out there who know who Malice is. Sure. Um, But as someone who did not know that there was more than one Malice and certainly didn't know this Malice obscure to me and really investing you in that character by showing characters get invested in her yeah like, imagine, imagine that if you uh if you do a little bit of character development time then people can care about the character how about that and it's 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 rooting everything that's going on here in like empathy and compassion and weaponizing those against charles xavier who just wants to throw her in the hole yes like I, I really love seeing this weird, weird collection of characters. If you stop and think about it, but perfectly logical collection of characters. It's given what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Like, and obviously, Teeny Howard sells why these characters get invested in Malice really well. Uh seeing them come together and just kind of put Charles in his place as. No, this is just kicking someone while they're down. It's a little bit like Carly and her. No, he just needs his meds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Superhero comics need more of that. That is, I am always a, speaking of water in a desert, I am always a sucker for these moments of, no, don't just punch it. Right. Don't just penalize don't just treat the symptom. Find out what's actually causing this. And like, yeah, practice restorative justice. <laughs> yeah, and here's the thing: part of part of what I absolutely love about this 
is this character in some ways doesn't want this because they just feel like everything is so futile, right? Well, and it's... This is one of the issues where we even get, like, on the last page, the contact information about suicide prevention and uh, uh, depression helpline. But even at the end, when this character is... And I... I hesitate to even say this word redeemed, right? Whatever you want to, however you want to phrase that, where she is given another chance. Yes. You still have no clue if it's going to turn out well or not. Yeah, like it's, it's very much, she is a work in progress. And now we as readers care very much about her progress. Right. And she is coming from a place of suicidal ideation, of yeah. wanting to not exist. Yep. And basically this puts Betsy and Quanan and uh, Emma, Emma in a position of saying, no, we we need to give you a chance to see that there is value to existence and that you have value and that you could thrive if that's what you want. Right. I, I, I do love this still fractious dynamic between Betsy and Quanan, though. The scene. <laughs> Let can we talk about the dresses? The dr- I, I was going to say you're going to talk about the dresses, aren't you? I am. Um, like seeing the two of them at odds, but now that they are their own people, mm-hmm. trying to find at least a neutral place with each other where they can respect each other as humans, if not like always be up in each other's shit. Right. Is super interesting. It just in general. This this issue kind of contextualizes that in Betsy has pulled a bunch of dresses out of storage and is giving them away because none of them fit. Right. Because these these are all, you know, dresses that she had that she thought were beautiful and loved them. And they're like apparently very, very pricey dresses and like, you know, like they yeah. are Yeah. <laughs> Jubilee mourns they're being burned when yes. they get burned. Great. Uh, they are they are couture. And then Quanon walks in and Betsy realizes, oh, right, that's why none of these fit me. And offers them to Quanon and Quanon's like, do you think I like these? Right. Well, and that's, yeah, I think I think the way she says that they're like, oh, so these are all my size? And Betsy's like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, but they're not my taste. Yeah. Right, they're Betsy's taste, but size for her uh Cut to, on the beach, a pyre burning all of these dresses, just as, as kind of a form of healing. Yeah. yeah a a little, form of... A little catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not just Malice who is going through some shit here. Correct. Best issue of this series. I, I don't know what else to say at this point. It's, it's just good. so, it's so fucking good. Yeah. Then we have Marauders number 19. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by Corey Pettit, and design by Tom Muller. So yeah, if you're, uh, if you're mutants from Kakoa and you can't go in to save the people of Lowtown, what do you do? You call them Morlocks. You call some mutants who aren't part of Krakoa and have them go in and kick ass for you. I have been waiting to get, like, a real Morlock presence in the Hickman era. Uh Uh-huh. 
not necessarily because I have any great attachment to the Morlocks. I don't know most of those characters particularly well. Just because it feels like a corner of mutant continuity that would stand kind of in contrast to the, the sort of gleaming island nation. Like, that's never what those characters have been about. Right. Seeing them instead, like, stand up for this this piece of Madripoor that they have, one of them has a little connection to, but most of them have no connection to. And then be embraced by that piece of, of Madripoor. Like, I like that a lot. This sort of like, okay, now we have our own slice of an island and right. we need Krakoa even less. Yes. I, I like that that sort of, of, of theme writ large for them. Also, it's going to set up so much, so much potential fun stuff, I feel like. I love that Callisto goes and, and pulls Mask into this group that's going mm-hmm. to help by telling him, yeah, you know that hospital that we just built and just got you installed that you love checking into and helping people? Yeah, I think her exact words are, that you don't hate. That you don't hate, right, yeah. They're... You know, they're gonna it's not gonna last if we don't go do something. He's like, Oh fuck. Mother fine, let's go. <laughs> right? Should also be noted that he's like in a suit with golf clubs getting ready to go play the back nine. Yes. He's been and a doctor then, for um, like two days and Yeah. And then um goes <laughs> first of all, Kitty put the uh Krakoa gate that they used to get there in, in the sewers, which uh-huh. He has a nice comment about, which is kind of funny. Uh, and then they go up, and they, they do, you know, they they do this whole thing. They take all these people out, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, uh, you know, take out the the reavers. And they're like, uh, "How dare you come back? Because if you you even think about touching that hospital, blah, blah, blah. and they were like, "What are you talking about? No, we got paid to raise everything except the hospital." <laughs> it's like, damn it, Callisto. <laughs> Callisto didn't know that, right? I mean, who knows? Callisto. If she, if she had known it, I don't think she would have changed anything that she did, but, you know. Well, that's that's true. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I just thought that was real humorous. Uh, but, yeah, so, um, turns out they're not calling it Lowtown anymore. They're calling it Mutie Town now, apparently, which I don't know how yeah. I feel about that. But um, Yeah, that's... I... I get it in context. Right. I would probably have rethought that name too. Yeah. But you know. It's not like Lowtown is a is a is a pleasant descriptor of, you know. No, but when a word is like canonically a slur in this universe. Right, yeah. Um but yeah, so uh now it looks like the Morlocks and you know, the Marauders have a have a piece of uh of this area of Matterport now. Yeah. I like it, I like it. Me, a two. All right, a quick, 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 quick King and Black wrap-up, largely because, frankly, I don't want to spoil anything that happens in uh, the end of this. Probably a good call. Yeah. Uh, We had Venom number 34. This is, by the way, the order I would read these books in. Uh, You definitely want to read Venom and Planet of the Symbiotes before King and Black. Venom number 34, written by Danny Cates, art by Iban Coelho, Colors by Jesus Abertov, and letters by Clayton Cowles. This is continuing, like, the Eddie Brock piece of the story, where he is 
inside of the the hive mind of Null, uh, and deals with how he gets in position to be where he's at in King and Black number five. We had King and Black, Planet of the Symbiotes number three, which was lettered by Corey Pettit. The first story here was Cloak and Dagger, written by Rodney Barnes, art by Danilo S. Beiruth, and colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. Uh, this is a Cloak and Dagger story. Cloak is feeling the influence of Null, just because he is tied to darkness and Null is the god of darkness. Null kind of gets gets his claws into Cloak as well. Dagger has to deal with that. Uh, there's also a Toxin story here. I do not know Toxin at all. Uh, this is written by Steve Orlando, art by Gerardo Sandoval with Victor Nava, and colors by Eric Arseniega. This is, I believe, a new Toxin. I don't know if we've seen this character get the symbiote or not, so this might be a spoiler. Jump forward like ten seconds. Toxin is a kid in a symbiote costume? Oh. Pretending to be an adult. Are you sure it's not three kids stacked on top of each other? <laughs> I mean, honestly? Honestly? Kinda. Um, and he's just he's just trying to do good. He's just trying to be a good guy. Uh, then, of course, we have King in Black number five, written by Donny Cates, pencils by Ryan Stegman, inks by J.P. Mayer and Ryan Stegman, colors by Frank Martin and Jason Keith, and letters by Clayton Cowles. This is the last chapter of King in Black. Um, if you are caught up on this book, you know where number four... What what entity shows up at the end of number four to sort of help turn the tides? This picks up directly from there. Uh, it also sets up a new status quo for uh, Eddie Brock, which we'll talk about maybe when we talk about Venom number 35. I want to hold that twist for then as well to give folks time to read. But Venom 35 is really the last chapter of this story. It will deal directly with that fallout. Um, so if you're reading Venom and not King in Black, I don't know how that works, honestly. But uh, you'll, you'll, you'll want to be aware of what happens at the end of King in Black for that last issue of Kate's Venom run. That's, that seems like common sense as I say it out loud. Yeah. It's a big status quo change. That's really what I'm dancing around. Is it still good? Crime Syndicate number two. Brian? Um, we find out just how much of a badass Donna Troy Superwoman is. And, um, turns out, uh, if you have the ability to hack into a Green Lantern's ring, then maybe you should be the one planning uh, what to do next. <laughs> I, I really like the sort of new version of Earth two that we're getting here or yeah. Earth three Earth that we're three. getting here yeah 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 oh and then in the backup story uh we find out why Alman doesn't give a fuck anymore <laughs> <laughs> yes father i shall become the honey badger <laughs> the dreaming waking hours number nine heather after and ruins attempt to uh reinstate Oberon, as King of the Fairies, goes about as well as anyone expected it to after they get tricked into that orgy. And then we meet the new ruler of 
the fairies. I I don't think we've talked about this book very much, just as an aside. It is really, really incredible. The art here is gorgeous. Um, cannot recommend it enough. Far Sector number 11, we are in the penultimate chapter of this story now. Joe Mullane has to deal with making sure the the vote as to whether or not to end the switch-off uh, exploit goes through safely while those in power want to, of course, maintain power for themselves and uh, go full fascist autocrat to try to prevent it. Noctera number two, Brian. Um, hmm. Sundog uh, finds out exactly who who is after her in Blacktop Bill. Uh, she gets the first taste of a meeting with him and then uh, decides to uh, run. <laughs> the Amazing Spider-Man, number 63. It's basically Romeo and Juliet, but with superheroes. So someone dies at the end of a Spider-Man again? Well... No one dies yet, but Robbie Thompson and uh, Tombstone's daughter are dating. Oh, And no. neither of their fathers is happy about that. No. I said Robbie Thompson. That's not right. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, not Robbie Thompson. Robbie Thompson wrote Suicide Squad. Yes. Uh, Robbie Robertson. Right, there you go. And uh, the new Beatle. America Chavez, made in the USA, number two. I don't entirely know what happens in this issue because uh things get a little weird at the end but we learn a lot about america's sort of history and relationship with her adoptive family and kind of why she left new york in the first place okay avengers number 44 the the phoenix chooses a victor in its contest to learn who will, or to decide who will gain its powers once again. The Immortal Hulk, number 45. Uh, the Hulk saw a red door, and he smashed it. Actually, mm, well, maybe a red Hulk does more smashing. A green Hulk with red veins. Christmas Hulk, Again. red and green. I, yeah. Christmas Hulk, Yes. <laughs> It's uh it's a Holly Jolly Hulk. It's our episode title now. <laughs> Runaways number 35. Uh the Runaways and Logan and Pixie find who actually emailed uh Krakoa asking for help because as it turns out it was not Molly. Oh no. And, uh, get some help for this character. This week's books. Kind of a quiet week this week, but with a couple of really big number ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. First up, we have Batman the Detective, number one of six. I think this was originally announced as Batman Dark Detective. Uh, this is written by Tom Taylor, art is by Andy Kubert, colors by Brad Anderson, letters by Clem Robbins. Uh, this is Batman sort of on the road in Europe solving a mystery. I've kind of intentionally avoided any information beyond that about what's going on here. That's but right. it's it's Tom Taylor. Like, duh, you've got to read it. 
Brian. Yes. Lock and Key Sandman. Hell and Gone, number one. I feel like we've been waiting for this one a little while. This we is another have, one. We that... have. We got a number zero, which was essentially kind of a, a, a reprint of some stories that had appeared before that kind of gave us a little introduction to, to both sides of this. But yeah, this is 100% the, uh, the Locke family find a key that opens into... Um, uh, into essentially kind of the house of mystery. Yeah, it's it's going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to uh, be. Uh, I mean, and by that I mean like probably for the characters because it's going to be real good to read. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that aptly describes my next book. Bad for the characters, but good to read. Yeah, Spider Man Spider's Shadow number one of four. <sighs> This is written by Chips Darsky, art by Pasquale Ferry, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, and letters by Joe Caramagna. This is uh, the first in a series of attempts by Marvel to sort of reinvigorate the what-if line by giving these stories more room to breathe. Uh, And if you can't tell, putting just all-star creative teams on them. This is basically asking the question, what if... Peter had put the symbiote back on. Uh, this one, I mean, you all you have to do to know this one's going to get dark is look at the cover. It is, like, this is a cover you would expect on a horror book. And I cannot yeah. wait. And Brian, finally. Joker number two. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the first one was so different from what we thought we might get from a Joker book. And I loved it so much that, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to number two. And then the reason, honestly, that it's on this list is... The backup story this time is going to be Punchline, which I am so, so ready to hear more of what's going to be next for this character. Yeah. Yep. I'm I'm, I'm going to repeat the way that I described this book because I've used this line on a couple of other people I know who are just so burnt out on the Joker and then heard this and they're like, oh, fuck, now I have to go read it. Yeah, right. Uh, this is about the Joker like Jaws is about the shark. <laughs> He is the he is the inciting incident, but it is not about him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that gets it for us this week, yeah? I yeah, I think so. As always, we would like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. Uh, also gonna plug the Discord for Certain POV. Links at the bottom of that homepage. Come, hang out, talk comics with us. Or other pop culture. Yeah. You can visit our website at panelologypodcast.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash panelology. Get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M. Or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelologymailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.